No one saw the resurrection of Jesus coming. The Romans didn't see it. They had this pretty effective strategy of persecute and execute. And when they crucified people, just statistically speaking, they didn't come back from the dead. So the Romans didn't see it coming. The Sanhedrin didn't see it coming. The Jewish leaders of the day who manipulated the system and uh, worked the system in order to get Jesus executed, they didn't see it coming. They thought this will solve the problem of Jesus if we just, if we can get the Romans to kill him. They didn't see it coming. The disciples didn't even see it coming. Even though Jesus told them, they didn't see it coming. They didn't expect it to happen. And as they scattered the night of Jesus' arrest, and as they were virtually absent from the cross, they thought, this is it, we're done, we're toast, it's over. They didn't see it coming. You see, Jesus' resurrection, it's not just an inspirational comeback story. It's not just something that we look at and say, oh, wow, that's a nice myth. Uh, that's interesting. You know, maybe it helps me get through tough times. No, the, the, the fact of Jesus's resurrection is meant to be not only the basis of our hope for our own resurrection, but also the paradigm for how we interpret living in the midst of less than stellar circumstances. So Jesus died But his death wasn't a loss. Because he rose from the dead, his death was victory. And his resurrection proves that he was victorious. And that that entire event of the gospel, his death and his resurrection, helps us as a paradigm. It's a way that we can interpret our own lives so that we can see as we go through difficult times, some of them just difficult because of the general circumstances of living in a broken world, right? As we go through difficult times, By faith in Jesus, we're not losing. To suffer and to die is not to lose. The resurrection is not, well, celebrating the resurrection is not a pep rally. I don't know if you've had the unfortunate experience of being at a high school pep rally. The fortunate experience. The fortunate experience. I know I have some folks in high school that are here this morning, and your school is the best ever, guaranteed. And, uh, you know. Out at Tehachapi High School, out in uh, Kern County, California, you may have heard of it, uh, we had some pretty epic uh, pep rallies. The thing about a high school pep rally is, you know, it's like glory of the school and, you know, all that. And, you, you know, for some kids, it doesn't take much to get them riled up. You know who you are. And for other kids, other kids are sitting there and they're going, what is happening right now? Like the rah-rah, they're just like, I don't get it. Like, I have a test tomorrow. I don't, what, what is happening? Like, why, why is this even a thing? You know, in, the, in a school pep rally, we're just trying to, you know, work up the frenzy and basically entertain the students and just add something a little bit to the student life. Okay, sure enough. And yeah, the schools, you know, they're, they're great. But sometimes we treat Jesus' resurrection like that. Like we celebrate it on, on Easter Sunday as like it's a pep rally. Like, hey, we just got to get worked up over it. Like, let's just get worked up with artificial frenzy over the resurrection of Jesus. But in reality, we know, man, I'm going home to some tough stuff. And if you're not facing difficult circumstances right now, I guarantee you, you will. You see, the resurrection gives us real hope as we endure difficult circumstances now. We know what will happen in the end because Jesus rose from the dead. 
In some ways, you could, you, know, you could say it this way. The end gives meaning to the middle. What's the middle? The middle is where we are. That's what you're living in right now. You're in the middle. And in the middle, we face physical trials. We face difficult circumstances where our bodies are broken or are breaking. In the middle, we face financial trials. When your septic goes and you weren't planning on having to replace that or when you, you don't get the raise and inflation's a billion percent and all the bills are stacking up, that's in the middle. In the middle, we face emotional trials, don't we? When a good friend stabs us in the back, when someone lets us down, we expected them to do better. You see, the end gives meaning to the middle. You and I need to ask the question this morning as we look at Revelation 7, how can I persevere in the middle? How can I endure by faith? How can I stand for Christ when the heat is on? How can I persist in faith when the tears are running down my cheeks? In Revelation 7, we're getting this this pause moment here in the vision. You remember that John has been taken, the Apostle John has been taken in a vision to heaven. And he's being shown uh, the lamb uh, breaking the seals that are basically the the symbol that God's will will be done in all the universe. And we saw the, the breaking of the six seals and the judgment, ultimately the judgment of the earth that is coming one day. But then there's this pause in this moment. And we saw it last week at the beginning of chapter 7, where he sees um, angels restraining the winds of the earth, holding back the judgment of God so that the, another angel can seal all the believers. So the, the angel can seal believers because believers are protected from the wrath of God and we belong to God. And so as we saw that, there's great encouragement there. And this is all built on the fact that Jesus is the resurrected Savior out of Revelation 1. He holds the keys to death and Hades. It belongs to him. And here in chapter 7, so he saw, you know, he saw this representative number of believers. We talked about that last week where he heard the number of believers, the 144,000. But notice what happens in verse 9 as he looks. And there's so much encouragement here. So he hears the number of 144,000 and all the tribes. But then watch verse 9. After this, after he hears the number, I looked. And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now pause right here at verse 9. It, this same thing happened in Revelation 5, where uh, John heard that one of the elders say, when he said, who is worthy to, to break the scrolls or break the seals? And John heard them say, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But then when he looked, what did he see? He saw the lamb. Here he hears the number, the number of those sealed, 144,000. But then he looks and what does he see? He doesn't see 144,000. He sees an innumerable multitude. From every, every people group, every nation represented, every language represented. He sees a number that literally cannot be counted. He can't fathom it. And there they all are standing before the throne and before the lamb. And they're clothed in white robes. What do the white robes signify? They signify righteousness and victory. These are, these are believers, and they represent, of course, the innumerable number. They represent all believers from all time. And there they stand before God, and they stand in victory in these white robes, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And they have palm branches, palm branches in general being a sign of victory. But here, maybe there's something more. Because in the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorated God's provision for Israel in their time wandering through the wilderness, 
they later celebrated that by building booths made out of palm branches. And they would, you know, wave palm branches and give them to the kids and all of that to say, we remember that God provided shade for us in the desert. God cared for us. John is given this vision to pass it on to people who are in the desert. They're wandering in the middle. They're facing the kinds of things that we just talked about. And as if the general circumstances of suffering in life weren't enough, they're also facing increasing persecution from the culture. The heat is getting turned up. More and more people in the culture are going, that's weird what you believe. That's not normal. And you know what? I don't think that I like it. In the midst of all this, he sees this encouragement, this this innumerable multitude standing before the throne. And what are they doing? Watch verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. There's a lot of moments of worship in Revelation because of the nature of the vision. As we get a little glimpse into heaven, we get to see what's going on. Right? But in this moment, as he sees all the church there gathered before the throne, what is happening? They are not weeping. They are worshiping. They, they are recognizing right there in that moment that salvation belongs to God. And what is God doing? He's giving it out. He is saving sinners. And they are evidence of that right there, clothed in white robes with the palm branches. Palm branches. God has provided for them. And that's the work of the Father. That's the work of the Son, the Lamb. That's also the work of the Spirit. And so they're worshiping, not weeping. Verse 11, the worship continues on beyond just the saints. In verse 11, all the angels stood around the throne. And along with the elders, other angels, and the four living creatures, other angels, they fell face down before the throne. And what did they do? They worshiped God. Yes, it's hard in the middle, but the end gives meaning to the middle. What were they saying? Verse 12, saying, amen. And then note this list, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What is that list? It's all the good stuff. All the power is his. All the the blessing is his. He's the source of all blessing. All the glory is his. He's the one, only one worthy of this praise. All wisdom belongs to him. Thanksgiving should be given to him. Honor should be given to him. His is the power. His is the strength. And there's no confusion about that in this moment. There's no, uh, well, I wonder, is God really there? Is he really faithful? Is he really worthy of this devotion? No, they, they are just consumed. The saints and the angels are consumed in worshiping God for his work in salvation, for rescuing sinners like you and like me. The end gives meaning to the middle. Specifically here in verses 9 to 12, we see that the church will be victorious. That for those who put their faith in Jesus, even though we might face difficulty now, again, generally speaking, or because of persecution, either way, in the end, we win. Because Jesus rose from the dead. In the end, we win. And so there's this opportunity here to recognize that the church's future victory is meant to fuel our faith today while we wander in the wilderness. I just need to ask the question this morning. Are you in the wilderness today? Are you facing a tough time? Take heart. God is in the business of rescuing sinners. He has not failed. And honestly, although there will be days when when we have tears in our eyes, I think part of the idea of this vision is to say, you know what? You could worship him now. 
You, you could worship him now in the midst of the middle. You could recognize on a daily basis, yes, this is really hard, but God is at work and salvation belongs to him and blessing and honor and glory belong to him and wisdom is his and, and power and strength are his. And so I should worship him now, even in the midst of the difficulty that I'm facing and I should be devoted to him now. Now, why don't we worship God in times of trial? It's, it's a fair question, okay? Because when you and I are suffering, I'm just speaking candidly, my first response is not, let's sing praise to Jesus, okay? Like, that's just not a natural thing. We, you know, we struggle in our response to trials. Why do we struggle? Well, I thought of a few reasons here. I'm sure you could think of more. But one reason is we value our comfort more than we value God's glory. We value our comfort more than we value God's glory. Sometimes we struggle to worship in difficult times because we just want it to be easy. We've forgotten that what's easiest for us may not be best. My friend Jonathan Edwards, he said it this way. He said, though their outward sufferings were very grievous, yet their inward spiritual joys were greater. These supported them and enabled them to suffer with cheerfulness. How's that for encouragement on Easter Sunday? What did we talk about today? Suffering with cheerfulness? You know, I don't know about that. Listen, our outward sufferings will be grievous. We're going to face tough times. But our inward joys can sustain us through those times. So that we can walk through trials with James 1, right? And we we can endure all these different kinds of trials with joy. Not with a plastic sense, a fake rah-rah, pep rally kind of faith, but with a faith that says God is at work, Jesus rose from the dead, the end gives meaning to the middle, and so I'm okay today. I'm okay. I can walk through this diagnosis. I can walk through this situation at school or at work. I can navigate the difficulty around me. Sometimes we don't worship in times of trial because we value our comfort over God's glory. Sometimes we're overcome by pain and or our shame. So sometimes we're just overcome by physical pain, emotional pain, or sometimes the shame of our own sin, it it weighs us down. But in those moments, again, this vision is gifted to us to say, look past that. Look to the cross. Look to the lamb. Salvation belongs to our God. And your pain does not undo the cross and the empty grave. And your shame was dealt with on the cross and death was defeated by the empty grave. Sometimes we don't worship in times of trial because we don't believe that God is sovereign. This is, a, this is a, a plague in our culture. It continues to be a plague. I've noticed it in um, some of the latest movies that have been made and shows constantly assaulting the idea that God is sovereign. And what they want to say is they want to say, your destiny is in your hands, right? And you're in charge of your own history. We were talking in, uh, in some, uh, the ABF about the Babylonian god Nebu. Like he writes down everything that's going to happen and the gods, you know, they're, they're the ones that write history. And the point in Isaiah 46, the point here is, no, God's the one sovereign over history. There's only one. And we believe, when we believe that God's sovereign, we can see hope that he will work all things for good to those who love him. But he's driving this bus. And that's okay that we don't know exactly what, how this is going to work out, but he does. Sometimes we don't worship in times of trial because we assume trials are the judgment of God. And right there, we just go back to last week's passage, the beginning of chapter 7, that when we are suffering trials, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are not being judged by God because the blood of Jesus protects us from the wrath of God for sin. Which means that it's discipline, it's help, it's, it's God's care and concern for us, even in sending us hard times. 
Finally, we don't worship in times of trial sometimes because we undervalue salvation in the church. I think in, in our cultural context, if I said, I could set you up financially for the rest of your life, you and your family, or you could grow in your faith and be poor. I think many of us would struggle with that choice. Sometimes I just would rather have the money. I think sometimes if someone said, hey, I can make you really popular with the kids at school. I can make you really popular at work and successful in your business. Or you can grow in your faith. I think some of us, we'd struggle. And we'd say, you know what? I just would rather be liked. The degree to which we fail to be excited about this scene, the innumerable multitude worshiping before the throne, right? The degree to which we struggle to get excited about that is the degree to which we fail to rightly interpret our lives. If we don't get excited about this, we're missing something, right? We're missing that God is at work and the victory of his church is sure because salvation belongs to God and to the lamb and he's doing it so no one can undo it and no one can defeat him. And again, he he conquered death. What else is there to conquer? I mean, here it is. But when we fail to be excited about that, it means when we're in the middle, we're going to really struggle in the middle. We're going to really struggle with despair and anxiety and hopelessness and frustration and bitterness and anger. And listen, we're going to face those same difficulties as others, but God says you don't have to live through it like that because the end gives meaning to the middle. Now, who's the crowd again? Let's just back up here. Look, watch verse 13 because this is great. And this often happens in uh, prophetic visions we find in the Bible There's a a, a question and answer time here, but it's one of the angels, one of the elders uh, asked me, verse 13, John writes, when one of the elders asked me, who are these people in white robes and where do they come from? Now listen, honestly, I would love to have seen John's face when all this is going down, even if it was a vision, right? Like he, one of these angels turns and asks him, hey, who are all these people? And John's like, uh, uh, verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know, I don't know. (laughs) So why does the angel ask? He asks because he wants John to know. He's like, hey, do you know who these people are? No, you don't know. Let me tell you, right? That's the point of asking. So verse 14, I said to him, sir, you know. And then he did know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. There's some uh, different ways to understand what the phrase the great tribulation refers to. Some people think it refers to like the last seven years uh, before uh, Christ's return, the judgment of, of the earth. And like it's like this really intense time of suffering, which it may be that. Um, others think, and I think I'm more inclined to agree with this group, that it's referring to the fact that between Jesus' death and resurrection and between his return, that whole time period is a time filled with difficulty and trouble. The church that John was writing to here in the first century in, in Asia Minor, they were experiencing great tribulation. We've reviewed it several times, but just so you're up to speed, some of them had been martyred. Some of them had been imprisoned. Some of them had lost their jobs for their faith. So they were facing that. There were wars. There were famines. There were difficulties going on geopolitically. And that has continued throughout history. And so I think I agree with those commentators that would say that this is actually a reference to all of life since the resurrection of Jesus, that there, it is the great tribulation we know it will intensify before the end. So who is the, who is the crowd then? Well, the crowd are those who have come out of the great tribulation. I, come out of, maybe another way to say it in English, come through it. They came through the tribulation. How did we come through it? 
with much pain and suffering. With many tears. Some came through it through martyrdom. Some came through it through mourning those who were martyred. And yes, those are the extreme examples. But the point is, there's an acknowledgement here that yes, it will be hard in the middle. But these are the ones who came through it. It's the innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's the church. It's the church. And we've come through the middle. And here is a picture of the end. It's a little, it's a little sneak preview forward. And what's, what's the point here? Well, look at them. They've washed in verse 14. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. If you've ever had a child with a bloody nose, get it on a white shirt. You know that there's a paradox in this image, right? We don't wash white robes and blood to make them clean. There's power in this picture. It doesn't seem like crucifixion is how the Savior would win. It doesn't seem like in the middle for me to go through hard times that that would be victory. But these saints from every tribe, tongue, and nation, what have they done? They washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They put their faith in Jesus' death on their behalf and his resurrection. And now they are clean. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They are declared righteous in the sight of God. They were God's enemies. Now they are God's friends. They were outside the family. Now they're inside the family. They didn't belong before. Now they're a member of the family, the kingdom of priests. They belong. And so there's this beautiful picture here of the church having come through the tribulation and all the suffering that was involved in that. But here they stand victorious and clean because of the blood of Jesus shed for them. The end gives meaning to the middle. Listen, if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, meaning you have, you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, you are clean right now. You have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And yes, in the middle there is difficulty, there are, there are challenges, but the blood of the Lamb cleanses us from all of our sin and it guarantees us our place before the throne. If you ask me, Pastor Ryan, how do you know the church is going to be standing there in victory? The answer is not because the church is amazing and we figured it all out. No, that's not why. It's not because we have a proven track record of obedience and we're going to like continue to do better and reform ourselves. No, the answer is we're washed by the blood of the Lamb. That is the reason why we'll be able to stand there. The end gives meaning to the middle. Our hope every day. See, we, we forget. That's why we have to constantly be reminding ourselves in gathered worship and conversations and singing. Our hope is always rooted in the gospel. Somehow our robes are white through red. Washed clean by the blood. Now it's important we acknowledge we cannot be washed clean by good deeds or law-keeping. Sadly, there are many people who will attend a church this morning, and what they will believe, and what they may continue to believe, is that if you want to be accepted by God, you have to clean yourself up. I just got to tell you, you can't wash that stain out. Your good deeds can't do it. We cannot be washed clean by suffering. It's not an equation that says, oh, the more I suffer, the more holy I must be. God uses suffering in our lives to sanctify us, but that suffering does not accomplish our salvation. So we're not saved because we've suffered. We cannot be washed clean by the church. And I love Green Palm Bible Chapel, but we can't do that. We can't do that. We cannot be washed clean by money. You know, it's funny. 
it was a big thing in the Middle Ages to like, it was a Roman Catholic thing. Oh, if you pay money, then you can get your uh, relatives out of purgatory earlier. Or if you pay money, you can get access to the treasury of merits from the saints, and that's going to be helpful to you. Uh, but no, it doesn't work that way. Today, it's a little different. We don't, I mean, they still teach that in the Roman Catholic Church, but today it's a little different generically because sometimes we think, well, I'll give money to good causes, and that's going to help me be clean a little bit. You know, so I'll give money to some good causes. No, we're not washed clean by giving money to good causes. We're not washed clean by prayer. In many uh, religions, there's this idea that the more you pray, the holier you are. And it like undoes your bad deeds by doing more praying. No, that's not how it works. We're not washed clean by prayer, by scripture memorization, by church attendance, by church membership. (laughs) The only way we are washed clean from our sin is by faith in Jesus who shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sin and who conquered sin and death by his resurrection. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, I just need to encourage you. You can be forgiven. You can be made clean. You can be in the family. But it's not something that you accomplish. It's by faith in something Jesus has done. And so we are clean even if we've been drugged through the mud or if we're wandering in that dusty wilderness. There's also a recognition here, and I think it's important that we we just identify it, that the focus may be primarily on those who face persecution. And in our culture, we're not facing martyrdom and imprisonment so much, but we're facing awkward situations with family. We're maybe facing getting passed over for promotions at work. We're facing, you know, awkwardness at school with the professor, with the friends, whatever. But we can get backlash. We can be treated differently because, of, because we're believers in Jesus. And so there is an acknowledgement here where John says, listen, it's okay that it costs something to follow Jesus today because the end gives meaning to the middle. You're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. So if you believe in, if you put your faith in Jesus and when people at work find that out and they treat you differently, the answer is not to hide your faith at your next job. John says, it's okay. Because you're going to come through the tribulation. And yeah, if, if you come to faith in Jesus, it means the dynamic in your family might change and that might create awkward situations and hard conversations that need to be had. But John says, don't hide your faith and don't, don't run from Jesus If anything, just you have to embrace that because the end gives meaning to the middle. There's a cost to discipleship. So yeah, I'm going to say no to greed because I follow Jesus now. And that might look weird to people around me. Or I'm going to say no to entertainment by anything and everything. Sometimes I have to say no to that because it's sinful. And so I'm not going to get entertained by that, even though everybody's watching that show or everybody's seen that movie. I'm going to say no to the sexual ethic of our age, which is absolute madness. I'm going to say no to the me first mindset, which is our national pastime. Me first. Me first. There's a cost to following Jesus. You will be weird if you follow Jesus. And you may suffer for it. But John says, that's okay. Because you'll be standing before the throne with your white robes washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Now, is there really hope? In the middle, yes, there is. And he focuses really on, on the ultimate blessing of the church here at the end of this, this section in chapter 7. Watch verse uh, 15. 
For this reason, because they're washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Again, there's the whole church there. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. Okay, again, this is a little sneak preview. And I think when he says they serve him day and night in his temple, we find out at the end of Revelation, the whole earth is his temple. The new earth is the temple. And so that's the picture here. All believers, innumerable crowd, right? From tribe, every tribe, tongue, and nation. What are they doing? They're before the throne of God, meaning they have access to God directly. And they're serving him with their lives every day. That's where we're all headed. We might as well do it now. This is where we're going. We're qualified to stand in the presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. And we are qualified to serve God, not because we're amazing, but because the blood of the Lamb has sanctified us. So now we're set apart to live for Him. And yes, to go to school for Him, and to go to work for Him, and to function in the family for Him, and do all the things that we're involved with on a daily basis for His glory. So yes, we serve day and night, and that's what we will do forever, and it will be good and glorious, and according to our gifting, it's going to be a great thing. And in that service, verse 15, at the end, the one seated on the throne will shelter them. The word for shelter here, it may be a wink back to that tabernacle feast celebration. That what we want in the middle is protection, and what we receive in the end, ultimately, is guess what? Protection. He goes on to develop that with a little help from Isaiah. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. He borrows this from the prophet Isaiah. The point of the image, though, if you think back to the wilderness wandering, I mean, hunger was a problem. Uh, Lack of water was a problem. Sunburn was a problem. The the heat's not going to get to them, though. They'll have the food they need. They'll have the water they need. This is a picture of provision. Where are we headed? We're headed for provision. In the middle, yes, it might get hard. And it's in the middle, there might be scarcity and there will be famine sometimes. And there's going to be difficulty. But in the end, you'll have everything you need because of God's protection. Watch verse 17. For the lamb, and this is so beautiful, for the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That last line also borrowed from Isaiah chapter 25. Ultimately, Jesus, the lamb. By the way, Jesus, the lamb who's at the center of the throne. Wait, I thought the throne was for God alone. Yes. Because Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is God. And while we make a distinction between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, rightly so, here the point is that Jesus has the authority of God because he is God. And so the Lamb sits on the throne here. And what will he do? He will guide us. He will shepherd us. Some of this language is borrowed straight from Psalm 23, verse 1, where you have this picture of God as our shepherd, which involves care and concern. And in the middle, you might struggle and you might think, "Ah, I don't know if God really cares about me. I think he may have forgotten me right now. And the message of the Bible is very clear. God has not forgotten you. He knows where you are. And the lamb will shepherd them. It's an ironic picture, a paradoxical picture, isn't it? The lamb being the shepherd. But here it is. Jesus, who was our great Passover lamb, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. He's the faithful one who is guiding us and will always guide us. 
Where will he guide us? He will guide us to springs of the waters of life. That's a picture for sustenance, provision, satisfaction. The things we chase from all the other false gods of our culture, we can only find actually in Jesus. Peace. Rest. He will guide us there. That's where we're headed. And in that moment, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We may shed tears in the middle, but in the end, they don't sell Kleenexes in heaven. No tears. No sorrow, which is hard because we're like, well, there are things that are going on that so, they're so weighty right now. And the point is not that you've forgotten bad things. The point is that we will see finally and with clarity what God was doing all along. And what will our response be? It won't be weeping. It will be worship. We will be blown away. Because the end gives meaning to the middle. Suffering will cease. Suffering will cease. There are four ways here the Lamb ministers to us. And I think the point is not just that that happens in the future, but it gives us hope today. Four ways the, man, the Lamb ministers to us. First, he reigns as the Son of God. He is at the center of the throne. And, you know, when the governor does dumb things, which every governor does, so I'm not picking out the governor of the great state of New Jersey. Maybe I should, but I'm not going to do that. All right? Uh, governors don't do good things. Kings make mistakes. Congress has passed dumb laws, wicked laws. That happens. But that doesn't change the fact that the lamb is at the center of the throne. So we, we can find comfort in that. Secondly, Jesus shepherds us through the middle. Again, there, that picture is meant to, to provoke images of care and concern. And people will fail you. We, we don't always care for each other the way we should. But Jesus never fails you. And in the middle, when you're facing something you don't want to face, you can remember, you know what? He's shepherding me. He's guiding me. Third, where does he guide us? He guides us to salvation and satisfaction. Maybe at the end of the day, we should learn sooner rather than later that money can't solve the problem. That never-ending entertainment isn't what we were made for. That fame and popularity ultimately can't give me peace and satisfaction. That climbing that corporate ladder is not going to help you sleep any better at night. Maybe we need to remember that what we need most is what Jesus provides for us. Forgiveness of our sins and a new purpose for living, living for his glory. Fourthly, and maybe, maybe most significantly in light of the chapter, what does Jesus do for us? He comforts us. He comforts us and he removes our pain. There have been so many times, brothers and sisters, when we have walked through difficult circumstances in our lives together and we've wept tears. Tears because of sin, general just suffering. Tears because of choices we've made or people we know or love have made. We've wept together. But in the end, we will find ultimate comfort and relief in Christ. We will not have sorrows and regrets. And I think John, in many ways, says the church needs to remember this right now because, man, it's hard some days in the middle. And some days in the middle, we should cry. 
And it's good to cry and to acknowledge our pain and wrongs that are happening. But as we acknowledge that pain and as we acknowledge the difficulty, we have to know that suffering will cease. It will not have the last word. That's why, you know, when we're singing some of these songs, a lot of times that's the imagery. It's like, yes, we acknowledge the failure. We acknowledge the the suffering. But that's not the end of the song and that's not the end of the story. We will, our feet will rise to dance. We will rejoice and we will be comforted. Because because Jesus rose from the dead. Again, my friend Jonathan Edwards talking about this. It's really, he just said it's a powerful picture of God's care for us. And he says, basically thinking about Jesus in heaven, but he says he still acts this way toward the saints on earth today. He still appears as a lamb for our benefit, manifesting exceeding love and tenderness in his intercession for them. We don't talk like that today, but lots of love, lots of tenderness. Why? Well, because he's one that had the experience of affliction. Affliction and temptation. Did you know that when you're struggling in the middle, Jesus knows exactly how you feel? He walked a mile in your shoes. Edwards goes on, He has not forgotten what these things are, nor has he forgotten how to pity those who are subject to them. Man, Jesus loves you. And that's why he can shepherd and guide you. Even today, the end gives meaning to the middle. He provides shelter for us. I wonder what you need shelter from this morning. What are the things that are assaulting you? Where are you facing temptations to sin? He's the one that provides shelter. And we also need to just acknowledge that sometimes we go to the wrong place for help. Right? Sometimes we go other places to get relief. We go to substances Drugs, alcohol, food, that's going to make me feel better. It might make you feel better for a moment, but you'll pay the price for that, right? Where do, we, where do we go for relief? Sometimes we go for relief to people. Like their affirmation and approval will make us feel better. Just don't do something dumb like Will Smith and then people won't like you anymore, right? Like as hard as we've all been on Will Smith, we've all done dumb stuff like that. Not on TV, thankfully. But we've all, we, who, who's not messing up? Who's not lashing out in anger every once in a while? Right? Where is that person? But man, public opinion can turn on a dime, can it? We can't find relief in the affirmation of people or number of followers online or likes. We can't find relief in our health. Sometimes we're like, oh, if I just lost enough weight, if I just could bench this much, if I could run this long, then, then I'd be good. And it's like, no. Ultimately, that can't last, number one. And ultimately, it's not a permanent solution. Where do we go for relief? The government. Like, sometimes it doesn't look like, it's not like, oh, the government's going to help me. It's like this. If the right party was in power, then I'd be good, right? Sometimes we think that. Nope. Maybe we go for relief to entertainment. That's a big one today. I'll just distract myself. I think there are going to be many days Many days where we could, we could have done better with our use of time. Because the end gives meaning to the middle. And the answer to getting through the middle is not just distract yourself till the end. See, the point here is that we are dedicated, we are sanctified, why? To serve the Lord now. To worship now. In the midst of the difficulty. Because the end gives meaning to the middle. I don't know if you remember, a few years ago, when ISIS was expanding in Iraq and Syria... Uh, there was a ton of persecution that was happening. I mean, they persecuted everybody. They weren't like only persecuting Christians, but um, 
most of the people that they persecuted were were believers. And there was this one moment, in this, because of the battle that had been won, the, the Christians had fled, and they had fled through the Sinjar Mountains, which are like barren, horrible, not, you don't go there for fun hikes. Like, it, it was a bad place. And so they, these Christians are on the run. And it was tragic as the story developed because it wasn't like it was just one day. It was over the course of weeks. And so the reports were coming out that these Christians were on the run from ISIS and they're being pursued through these mountains. And they, were, they, they didn't have food, so they were starving. They didn't have water. They were dehydrated, right? They were suffering. There was no shade. There's no trees on those mountains. So it was like there was no relief. There was no shade from the sun. And they were just absolutely miserable. And sadly, many of them dropped dead in those mountains. You hear those stories and, and your heart goes out to these Christians who had to endure such difficulty here in the middle. But one day, one day when it's all said and done, they will look back on those moments. And they will not look back with anger They will not look back in frustration or bitterness. They will look back in worship. And they will say, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Listen, what about us? You're not being chased through the mountains, okay? You're you're not being threatened with losing your life for following Jesus. So what is your excuse for why you're not following Jesus today? If you're thinking, oh, I'll get to it later, First of all, no one can guarantee you later. And second of all, who's God? Do you determine the purpose of your life for today? Or will you trust the Lamb with that? You see, we serve a risen Savior. The church will be victorious. We stand clean, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and suffering will cease. All of that collectively means, hey, guess what? In the middle, while it's hard, let's follow Jesus. Let's persevere by faith. Not so we can earn forgiveness, but brothers and sisters, because we already have it. The end gives meaning to the middle. My prayer for us is that we would be faithful as we walk through it. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us with just that. Lord, we we confess this morning that we struggle. We struggle to follow you often in the most difficult times of our lives. Doubt creeps in. The pain is real. Lord, the guilt is there. And we just forget. We focus, on the wrong, we focus on the wrong things. And so we ask this morning that you would help us to, to catch this vision. To see the glory of where the church is headed. The innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation who has made it through the tribulation, standing victorious in white robes washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we thank you that ultimately we will have eternal satisfaction in you. Lord, we ask for your help today as we face temptation. Lord, maybe there are those here we would confess we need to make major changes in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to trust you and to make those changes. Not to earn your favor, but Lord, because you've already granted us your favor. And Lord Jesus, we praise you especially this morning because of your death and resurrection. And Lord... Your resurrection gives us real hope today in the middle. And so we ask that you would be glorified as we respond to your word even now. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.